The future of population health is coming to bluegrass country. This fall, the University of Kentucky's Center for Innovation and Population Health hosts Let's Go Pop Health, the 19th annual TCOM conference in Lexington, Kentucky. Hello, I'm Dr. John Lyons. I'm the director of the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky and the original developer of TCOM. Join experts and leaders sharing insights, research, and new developments in population health. TCOM is a person-centered approach to system transformation to build systems that care. Network with peers, visionaries, and organizations dedicated to improving the health of our communities. Engaging keynote speakers, informative breakout sessions, and downtown Lexington hospitality. Come away with the tools and resources to help you shape the future of population health. You'll be surprised how much you'll learn and how much fun you'll have convening with a group of sharing professionals who all care about doing what's right for the people we serve. The future of population health starts with you. Register today at tcomconversations.org forward slash tcom 2023. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk About It, a conversation about qualified individuals, QIs, and four QIs regarding all things considered important and meaningful to the people who do this work. From the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky, I'm Brandon Howlett, an Equip Partner, and your host for this episode, built around a great conversation between our two guests, Emily Isaacs, a Clinical Implementation Manager at Maximus, and Sharon Campbell, a QI Clinical Supervisor at the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. Emily gets the ball rolling. When did you first hear about the Family First Prevention Services Act or, or FFPSA and the qualified individual process? I think, I can't say for sure, but I think when I heard it is when my boss came into my office and said, hey, there's this new program and you're getting moved into it. And then I started frantically reading the Family First Act to figure out what that meant. And that's, that is... Then I eventually moved on to that team as they were just starting. What about yourself? I first heard about it in December of 2018, actually. So so before it was officially launched, I had, had heard about it. I was actually working as a, a project manager for one of the states that we work with. And we were doing the utilization review process for the psychiatric residential treatment facilities within that state or PRTFs, which is... Some of you in the industry may be familiar with with those and and kind of the the distinguishers between that and 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 QRTP. But essentially, our client approached me and said, "Hey, there's this new law, FFPSA, and it requires this qualified individual assessment. Can you do that for us?" And and like you, I just started immediately frantically reading and thinking, <laughs> "Yes, I know that we can." And so that was that was my first introduction to it. So it's been a little while. Yeah, you're a, you're a little head of, ahead of when our state started it, but we didn't have, there was a lot of planning going on, but I just hadn't heard about it. I was busy as a child welfare clinician for a region of the state. So I had been doing a lot of the work, but now it was just going to shift and be a little different. So what do you find... What did you find most challenging when you started it? Ooh, <laughs> I think in a lot of a lot of projects that I worked on, there's very specific criteria, right? So there's like there's level of care criteria, and there's medical necessity decisions, and it's a it's very straightforward and it's very easy to apply. But you know, a lot of a lot of federal regulations, and I've worked with those in a few other projects, tend to be very vague. <laughs> and I think this one is 
is is up there as far as that goes, just in terms of making a least restrictive determination without a lot of guidance on it. So I think for me, that was the first thing that jumped out is, well, how are we going to make these decisions and and how are we going to do it consistently, which I think is still probably one of the most challenging pieces of it. Um, what about you? How do you, you know, how are, how is it that your team is, is using the cans in terms of making those decisions? Well, we worked with someone from University of Kentucky to help us kind of figure out how this was all going to fit together when we completed a CANS and level of care. It doesn't always work out as neatly. Sometimes it does, you know, where it's like, oh, obviously this youth needs to be in this level of care. And then there's other times where the level of care you know, seems a lot lower than you expect it to be when you finish it. And, but you really feel like, well, I can't imagine this youth not being in this level of care at this time and being safe. (laughs) So I think that's a challenge for us sometimes. I also think one of the things that my team has talked about is when they do the interview with the youth, they feel very pulled into the youth's experience and their side of the story. And a lot of times our youth are already in the placement and they're kind of saying, you have to, you have input into whether I should be here or not. So how do I get out of here? So they're trying to convince us that they don't need to be there and they can be very convincing. So then we have to look at other information, not just that interview. So I guess that was one of my questions for you is, how does your team get the background information to complete a CAMS? Yeah, so so my role may have been a little different than yours in terms of I've been very involved more like with our state clients in terms of setting up the work. How are we going to do it? How are we going to make sure that we're, we're, we're meeting the goals of the state where mm-hmm. they are? where they're trying to go? How are we going to make sure that our team is doing that in a really reliable, high quality, consistent way? But I have done some of the assessments because I, I needed to be able to prove that I can practice what I preach. <laughs> so, um, And that that experience was really valuable because what I've learned is so important to getting this process done and getting it done right is just the strength of the clinical interview. And I think that's something that is so important and is, is often maybe overlooked I think, you know, there are times that the cans can be almost treated like a checklist and I don't think it works well when it's done that way. So one of the things that I know I've worked on really strongly with with our team is having a set of questions that are really important to ask every single time, but also having the ability to pivot to ask the next question, right? So, you know, as you've probably encountered, sometimes people are more forthcoming <laughs> than others. Sometimes people will just kind of say, oh, yep, they're aggressive, you know, and leave it at that. So the key is always kind of asking that next best question, right? Which is, when's the last time that happened? Can you tell me what that looked like? Has anyone ever been hurt when that happened? And just being able to get those details. And I feel like really getting those nuances is is what sets the, is what sets the whole process apart. I feel like it's such a there's such a gray area between when QRTP is the least restrictive environment and when it is not. And sometimes those nuances are really what makes the difference. Yeah. And I think that we 
Yeah, I really value the cans. And so I want it to be used in a way that it's it's actually very helpful. And I also find that a lot of people have used it in private practice in our state and they don't really focus on really utilizing it. And so they have some biases against what's mm-hmm. the point of this. Yeah. But when you pull together all the information, it can be such a useful instrument. And so that's what I that I that our team works on a lot is is really filling it in and giving a full picture of this use. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a point in time. So they may qualify going in because they've just had a really their past month or two have been really bad. And once they stabilize, that's the tricky part though. When we do updates, it's like, well, is this youth doing so well because they're in this restricted environment? Mm-hmm. And if we say, well, they're doing great, we should recommend they leave. Are they going to do as well or are we going to go back to ground zero? I think you've identified actually one of the things that were that was one of my questions, which is that's probably one of the bigger challenges and probably one of the hardest CANS principles is that rate the youth, not the youth and services. Mm-hmm. Because I think something that we see a lot is, you know, they are in that restricted environment. And so, you know, what would it look like? Like you said, if that's not there and there's not always, unfortunately, kind of the, the home visits or the community outings or the the opportunities to kind of see what would happen if those restrictions aren't in place. So that's definitely one of the the bigger challenges that we've had, which makes me curious because I, I was I was wondering that. I know that not everyone kind of requires reassessments. There's of course the federal limit for youth that are under 13, or is it 13 or 13 or younger? Under 13. Yeah. That are under 13. That's what I thought. So there's the, yeah, there's the federal restriction on or or placement limit kind of on those youth that are under 13 of the six months or 12 months for those that are 13 or older or the 18 non-consecutive months. So a lot of states I know are doing reassessments at that point. They're doing almost just a you know, kind of at, they don't have to have, you know, the qualified individual, I guess, do that layer of approval at that point, but many states are opting to. And then we have other states that we're working with that are doing them like every 90 days, like they don't want an approval to last longer than that. So for your work, what are, what is it that your team is doing? We're doing them every 90 days and we're Mm -hmm. also having our director of our whole department look at those at the six months for under 13 and the 12 months for over 13. And so, and they also just look at the documents and say, does, you know, I mean, they're taking it seriously that it's it's a big deal for a youth, especially, well, for under 13 or over 13, it is a big deal. And I really do agree with the the idea that they should not be there any longer than they need to be there. Yeah. And I used to work in residential treatment, so I know that it's not the answer to everything and there's, they can't fix everything and and it can be traumatizing for youth to be there. So I I think we take that really seriously and sometimes it's, it's a difficult process 
And our QI clinicians really struggle with trying to figure out what their recommendation is going to be. It can feel like a lot of pressure. I think that's probably one of the the most challenging things is feeling like I have this decision that's in my hands and and how is that going to impact them and their life and their their reaction to trauma and their their future. So it it can certainly feel like a weight, (laughs) you know, is is on you with making these decisions for sure. Well, and I remember I had a few at the beginning that I said, well, we never even gave this the chance to be in a foster Mm -hmm. home. And Mm -hmm. so I said, you know, at least give them a chance. We don't know how they'll do. Do they need to go straight to this restricted level of care? And and then they went through four foster homes and had all sorts of trouble. And then I was like, okay. So, you know, they they had that opportunity, but they really need a more restricted level of care. So but anyway, I, I I do wonder, another thing that I wondered is if, so it sounds like you do a lot of deep diving in the clinical like interview with the youth. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting trained by Dr. Lyons to do the camps for child welfare and him saying, you know, if we don't have to re-traumatize by asking a lot of those questions. Totally. Totally. We, I would actually say that depending on how forthcoming the, the child or youth is, I mean, you may end up actually sometimes spending the least amount of time with them mm-hmm. out of everyone that you interview. And and to your point, not not because you don't want to see their their perspective or their side of things, but because it can be really difficult to just force them to talk about really difficult things if it's not necessarily helpful, you know, to the process mm-hmm. or helpful to making the decision. So, you know, that that actually kind of segues nicely into something that I've been curious about with you is that we have to, of course, complete the qualified individual assessment in conjunction with the permanency team. That is hard. <laughs> there, <laughs> these children come with a lot of contacts, a lot of supports, a lot of people that know them, a lot of people involved in their care. You know, I think one strategy is is kind of conducting it, you know, along with an already scheduled permanency team meeting. I think that has its pros and cons too. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? You know, we saw at the beginning that if we left it up to initially the plan was to leave it up to the team to schedule the meeting that we mm-hmm. held after we had partially completed our assessment and then gathered more information. But we just saw we were more motivated by the timeframes than the teams were. It was a priority (laughs) for us and not necessarily for them. Mm -hmm. So we took control and said, okay, you know, do you have a meeting already scheduled that we can be part of? Um, At first, teams were really reluctant because we were then saying, not only are we going to be part of your monthly yeah. congregate yeah. care team, but we're going to invite parents and probation officers and CASAs. And, um, right. and that was a, a challenge for them because they just weren't used to having those participants involved in their process. But I think now they're used to it and they see the value in it. We kind of have to just force it at first. And now they kind of know our system is we're going to schedule it. You either have a meeting we can 
that's already pre-scheduled we can be part of, or we will just try to look at everyone's schedule and come up with a time. Um, so we haven't really had a problem with it since the beginning. We had a lot of problems right. at the beginning. And the yeah, we usually try to have the facility as part of that if the user already plays, because they've already gathered a lot of information too that maybe haven't even changed since we did a youth interview. Maybe they've assaulted three staff since we first did it. Right. <laughs> so we never finish our assessment until we have that meeting and get additional meeting from that as from that. And then we complete our assessment after that meeting. But that was an initial struggle. Yeah. But I think people felt like, well, it's better that we give you input than you just come up with a time. <laughs> yes. No, that's definitely true. I, I think, you know. Where I've gone back and forth on it is meetings are great, but I do think there's kind of like a meeting etiquette that happens and people sort of lapse into using kind of those therapy words. Whereas, like I said earlier, I think it's really important to get the nuances. And so my experience has been that sometimes people are more forthcoming <laughs> in a one-on-one kind of situation. So I think the meeting has its benefits, but I think also just individual interviews where people can be very honest and very straightforward and kind of leave it up to you to integrate that information into to how things go is also has its benefits. So I don't, I don't know that I've solved it. I don't know that I will solve it. You know, again, I think in conjunction is one of those things that is, is not federally defined and maybe not federally defined for a reason. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. And sometimes I feel like we get some information we kind of, without even thinking about it, start developing a picture of all these different people involved in the youth slides. And then we talk to them one-on-one and get a completely different perspective. So I always appreciate getting the one-on-one, just having the time. Sometimes we have so many referrals at once that we have to use that meeting as, okay, we still haven't gathered enough information um, and at one point, it was even suggested that we not do individual interviews. We gather all of our inter- information at that one meeting. And I was like, that's just not going to happen. No. People will not share what they would if we talked to them. Exactly. It's it's interesting how that goes, right? Like the permanency team meeting, you know, you you think of that as being, well, this is when we come together and talk about what needs to happen. But it's like I said, there's something like a meeting etiquette <laughs> happens and it's yeah. not always as straightforward. I see we have a prompt from from Brandon in the chat. I think it's really interesting, which is basically, is there anything, is there anything that we think that that qualified individuals would want to be changed or shifted? I don't know that changed or, or shifted is necessarily the word I would use for it, but I do think one of the hardest things to do is also coming up with short-term goals and long-term goals because my experience in working with different states is that everyone kind of has a different opinion on what a what a short-term goal and what a long-term goal should look like. And there's there's a lot of variety with it. There's a lot of, I think some of the QRTPs themselves are, you know, thinking, are, are we are we supposed to do all these goals? Is anyone checking on that we're doing these goals? And I do think that's an area where I would love to see maybe just some best practices emerge or or just some some strategies on how to make sure that we're really meeting the needs of these kids and, and setting realistic and attainable and achievable goals that make them feel like they're they're accomplishing something. 
And I think one of the struggles we have initially, we were kind of leading it just because we were ahead of where all of the child welfare teams were in what we were doing and what Family First was. And so we were kind of steering the ship. And then they said, now we've got to pull back and become those objective assessors more. And when we did that, they also asked us, said, we are not, you're not assessing the individual QRTP. You are assessing the level of care. Right. QRTPs are not the same. So some are doing substance use treatment. Some have people trained in sexual offender treatment. Some are using outpatient therapies and the inpatient. So it's really difficult to just look at, at least that is how it's being interpreted in our state, that that's not part of our job. And yet we know, depending on where they're placed, it will be very different. And even how we focus on the treatment goals may be a little different. So how's that been for you? Yeah, I, and I think we've had some shifts, you know, over time as we've worked with our with our clients and and kind of thought about what is the most useful thing here because I think it's a natural inclination, right? With the with the cans, especially when they have a lot of needs, to to really set a goal for every <laughs> every need that they have, but that's overwhelming, I think, and and is not attainable and doesn't set anyone up for success. So something we've really tried to do is is prioritize, like to really look at, you know, when you're thinking of short-term goals, some of those risk behaviors, right? What are your, what are your dangerous or disabling risk behaviors and and stabilizing those and getting those to a place where they're not harming themselves or they're not harming other people is kind of a good rule of thumb, I think, to think about with that. We also, and I think this is really interesting, see a lot of kids that come in and there's a lot of a lack of consensus on what their diagnosis is or what their treatment needs actually are. It might be that they had, you know, some past trauma that that has physically impacted them in a way that we don't medically understand. It may be that they've got some undiagnosed IDD, you know, situations going on. And so I think that's something that I also think is a huge priority when I think of short-term goals is if we don't know what we're treating, then we cannot successfully treat this child. So like I said, that's kind of how we look at it is, is the short-term ones are more what needs to be solved, how can we treat them successfully, and what needs to be stabilized. And then we try to prioritize and come up with a few. The longer-term ones are more like, well, what would they need to safely maintain? You know, what once they get back to the community, what are some things that are kind of, you know, not as dangerous or disabling, but that I think will really help make them successful longer-term in the community? Yeah, so I guess... In just answer to the question, I think it's it's ever-evolving. Yes. You start feeling like you've got an idea how to do one thing, mm-hmm. and then you go, but what about this? And then you yeah. start focusing on how do we make that part better? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important to validate people that are doing this work to say it is ever-evolving, it is ever-changing. There's not a lot of guidance. There's not a lot of best practices that have emerged yet. We're all doing the best that we can and, you know, reminding ourselves that, that the priority is that we're, we are trying to serve the needs of, the, of these children as best we can. So that, that process is, is going to be ever-evolving. And if we change it, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or that you're doing it badly. Mm-hmm. It's just that 
you know, it's it's a constantly evolving process anytime you're doing anything new where there isn't a lot of guidance yet. And for me, I like that anyone have get bored if we got it all figured out. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, the other thing I wonder about, and maybe I'm asking you too many questions, Emily, but I wonder, do you ever wonder about the people that you're supervising, the QIs, how how they're impacted by hearing these stories of trauma and how are they taking care of themselves that way? Because obviously they can have vicarious trauma just listening to or, or reading about or hearing from the teams what you've been through. On one hand, we really focus on the need for not necessarily the youth retelling their trauma to us, but remembering that history as partially or, or maybe all of what's driving their behavior mm-hmm. so that so that people don't just forget and just start thinking, this is a bad kid that keeps getting into lots of trouble and moving places really? and causing me <laughs> trouble. Really? We really focus on, we want a place to pull that history together and remind people there's a reason for these responses. Yeah. But in doing that, in doing all that digging and pulling that together, and that can be hard on staff. I, I agree with you because I think the what happened to them is not making the decision, <laughs> you know, in terms of what what is the appropriate level of care. It, it is how it has impacted them and, and what their clinical needs are and, and what safety issues are present. But yeah, I, I do think that that part is hard just in terms of that vicarious trauma. I know that's something that I'm super passionate about is giving that whole picture because I think that there's a little bit of an issue in just kind of clinical documentation and maybe a shift that needs to happen across the board to focus on the facts. I think especially with children and maybe because we're writing less to children and documentation and more about them, it's really easy to go into using a lot of adjectives to describe them. So that's something that I'm really passionate about with our team is focus on the facts, what happened, and give the whole story, give the whole picture. Those caregiver needs, those are really important too in terms of presenting what what's happening with this child. And also I think important going back to those goals in terms of it can't just be about the child, right? Like it is about how the team is going to support them about who is the permanency team and what do they need to accomplish for, for the child to be successful. So complex stuff, but yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think it's rewarding. It's it's hard sometimes though to be the one that's pulling all this information, especially because sometimes we have even had teams say, what do you mean they were sexually abused? And we were like, well, we found it in your records. Right. Uh, but it got forgotten because they went through so many different case managers and, you know, safety assessors and permanency staff that some of their history got forgotten and never right. read it. So I am passionate about trying to pull together that too. But I also think that with it can be difficult to feel like at the beginning you are holding all this information mm-hmm. and then you turn it over to the team and then you make your recommendations and then it's up to 
them to move forward and you don't really have control over that. Right. Well, and then there's the added layer of the court process. I don't know what that's looked like for for your team. That's looked a little bit different for us, project to project. In some states, we actually just go ahead and upload um, our report electronically into their court system. Others, Mm -hmm. it's more the responsibility of the referring case manager to make sure that the court gets it. But that's been interesting. I mean, I think generally we have found that the courts tend to take our word for it. (laughs) I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. been the case in your situation as well. Yeah, that that has been, uh, we had a few at the beginning where the courts were asking us to have hearings. And at one point we had, um, we were, I was supposed to testify as to our waiver process and all sorts of things at first. But now I haven't had any feedback other than that they followed the recommendations. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's so that's the, I don't know if I would say it should change or shift, but I'm betting there's a lot of variety. And it's interesting to me, some of the time frames. I wouldn't be surprised if the time frames on this change, you know, the, the 30 days to get it done, but then the court has 60 days. And, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of a long time for a kid to be in one setting if, if then they overturn the decision. And then there's a scramble to find them, you know, somewhere to go. And, I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't have that solved either, but but I wouldn't be surprised if some things shift to smooth that process process out a little bit in the future. Yeah. Well, we haven't solved it all. <laughs> but keep up the good work. It sounds like you're doing a great job. You're clearly very passionate about what you're doing. So well, good. I appreciate just being able to hear. You always do wonder how's this going in other states and other mm-hmm. regions. How are people doing it differently? And are they running into the same questions or challenges that we are? But I really the answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just nice to know there's other people out there doing it because we have a pretty small team for our state. And you have a pretty big team, I think. But I appreciate being able to talk to you. Just you did here. It's it is validating. It's also answers some of my curiosity question. Exactly. So I hope it's helpful to have the rest of the QIs that are part of our base camp. It's helpful to me, that's for sure. And we hope listeners will let us know if this conversation between Emily Isaacs and Sharon Campbell was helpful to you. The intention of this podcast is to serve as a hub for collaboration, a central point of connection, and a beacon for gathering information and resources specific to the role of the QI. For the entire EQIP team and for the University of Kentucky's Center for Innovation and Population Health, I'm Brandon Howlett, and you've been listening to Let's Talk About It.